Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. You're fantastic at coding, but do you have an action plan to take it to the next level? The upcoming book, Next Level Freelance, will help you optimize your freelance business for happiness. The book is packed with actionable steps to make more money, case studies, tips to find more clients, and exercises for you to establish your desired lifestyle. Extras include nine interviews with freelancers who make great money while enjoying great work-life balance, videos on strategies to find quality subcontractors, and videos on making more free time by outsourcing your daily tasks. Check it out today, nextlevelfreelance.com. This episode is sponsored by Planscope. Planscope is a project management and collaboration app built for freelancers and the way they work with clients. It makes it easy to price out new estimates and once you're underway, help answer the question, will this get done on time and under budget? I've been using Planscope to do my estimates and manage my projects and I really, really like it. It makes it really easy to keep things in order and understand when things will get done. You can go check it out at planscope.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 96 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Reuven Lerner. Hi, everyone. Eric Davis. Hey. Curtis McHale. Good day. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest, and that is Brennan Dunn. Howdy. So I'm not sure you've been on the show before, Brennan. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. So actually, I was. What episode was I on? Oh, yeah. like 20 episodes ago or something. It was on um, Recurring Revenue. But my name is Brendan Dunn, and I'm kind of a freelancer turned agency owner turned product guy. Right now, I'm kind of juggling a lot of different things. My primary business is a business called Planscope, which is a SaaS business. But I've also written two books, uh, both on freelancing. I teach a bi-monthly online workshop on uh, called the Consultancy Masterclass. I have a membership site called the Freelancers Guild. And I run a newsletter, uh, which is called Freelancers Weekly. And uh, I guess that's me in a nutshell. So you said you turned and then you turned. So if you turn two more times, you back and started. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, next week, I'll be a freelancer again and, you know, just shut, it, shut it all down. <laughs> uh, I'm still trying to round that first corner, I think. I think the biggest milestone, and, and this is something I'm always trying to get people to uh, push toward, even if it's a very simple undertaking, is get a random stranger to pay you something. I think if you can get to that point, um, whether it be through like a like a WordPress plugin or a little ebook or something, you know, not needing to invoice somebody to get paid. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> that is a great way to describe it. Of course, that, I- like the fundamental distinction between services and products. Mm-hmm. Of course, I did some work for somebody, and I invoiced them to not get paid. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that, too. You can do that, too. Not as profitable that way. Probably not, yeah. (laughs) So uh, we brought you on to talk about value-based pricing. What exactly do you mean by value-based pricing? I guess value-based pricing, in my mind, is the opposite of commodity pricing. Commodity pricing is the idea that hey, I'm a Ruby developer, therefore I have a market rate, therefore my acceptable rate that I charge my clients is X. Value-based pricing is really where you don't put the focus on you and your industry or you and your craft, and instead you're focusing on the client. You're focusing on, well, what solution am I solving? What are the implications of the solution being delivered? And how can I anchor that against you know a price that makes sense for me and my client? So it's really just getting away from the idea, the kind of the race to the bottom of, well, I do X and X is worth Y. I like that idea. I have people come to me all the time that have businesses that are going to be worth millions. So, you know, the value for them (laughs) is real high. And so I can definitely charge them that, right? 
Well, (laughs) you know, every every time I talk to someone who says they have a business that's going to be worth millions, they say, so I'm happy to give you equity because eventually you'll be able to buy a house with that equity. (laughs) And to which I say, "Uh, I have a slightly different business model than that. (laughs) Yeah, they they have everything to lose and everything to gain. I mean, you as the service provider, you, uh, you know, you're typically not on the upside or you, you don't have the effect that they might end up having should they be successful you don't typically capture any of that but you know conversely if they go belly up which tends to happen frequently you still get paid yeah you're still getting paid right so yeah equity deals are not something i would recommend to anyone (laughs) i know there are companies out there that make it work but i think they're pretty careful and fairly discerning about who they make those deals with Mm -hmm. and they also have ways of absorbing that risk yeah, that's a whole other show, I think, on its own. So anyway, so let's say that somebody comes to you and says, I've got this terrific idea. I want to get it built. How do you go about evaluating the actual value that you're going to be providing them so that you can give them a price that reflects that? Right. So one of the probably best moves I made for my career was the kind of unfounded decision to go to school to major in liberal arts. And as a result, I did a lot of reading and I read a lot of Plato and I came across the Socratic method, which is just really a kind of a inquisitive system, I guess, for kind of peeling away what, uh, you know, what's brought to you or what's at the surface and really getting to the root of, you know, why, in our case, why a project is on the table. So my first thing I would do is I would look, look at the project being presented to me and try to figure out why is this project really being presented to me. Do they really want a new site? Is that really what they need? And chances are there's something behind the surface, some sort of business problem that needs to be solved that they're really aiming to achieve. So what I would do and what I do is I really try to talk to the client and and really work backwards and say, okay, so you need a new website. Well, why is your current website not good enough? And, you know, they would tell me, well, you know, it's ugly or it's, whatever. And then I would try to figure out from that. So why do you think it's ugly? Well, why do you think making it pretty is going to have any sort of meaningful impact in your business? And eventually I try to get to the point where I can get them to kind of vocalize to me that no, they really want a website because they want more customers or they want more higher conversions or they, you know, in the case of working maybe with a startup, they want to have some sort of, um, you know, big brand recognition or something, right? So there's always some underlying business motivation behind projects. And we're not always privy to it. We're not always given that as part of the requirements for a project. So if I can figure out why a client really wants a project, then I can really tailor everything, you know, my positioning, my proposal, and um, just about everything um, as it relates to me and the client to that end versus thinking purely about technology. Because I think so many of us, we're very, we're proud of the fact that we're good developers or good designers. You know, we know it took a while to get to the where we are now. So we can't help but kind of be proud of the work we do. But at the end of the day, what we end up doing for the client is really just the vehicle that gets them to that tomorrow. So, I mean, my method is really just figuring out what do they need tomorrow to look like? And how can we put something together that gets them closer to that versus just reacting to technical requirements. I mean, so what you're describing sounds great. But for example, I I met with a a new potential client, I guess it was last week. And he has an idea for basically a startup. He says, I have this idea. I want it to happen. His family is quite wealthy. He says, between my family and a friend of ours, we're going to fund it. He says, so the budget is more or less whatever it has to be. I'm not really interested in monetizing it. 
And I was really interested in applying value-based pricing to this, but it wasn't at all obvious where I start asking questions of that would lead me to understand the value that's involved. And it could be, I mean, as you mentioned in a note earlier today, it could be, this is just a bad example of a client to apply value-based pricing to. Well, I think value doesn't need to mean money. It doesn't need to mean profit or revenue. I think, you know, in this case, if he's not looking to monetize, I assume he wants to basically get aqua hired or sell or something, right? Like yeah, he, the goal. Said, he said, he said basically, we'll give it two or three years and in that time we'll figure something out. I have a lot of ideas for monetizing, but who knows? Okay. <laughs> so you might have an edge case in this example, but I mean, typically what I would say is look for, you know, somebody wants to have a startup like they might want to be in a band. Like there's a lot of startup founders who look at it as like being a rock star, right? Like it's the equivalent, it's the 21st century equivalent of being in a rock band. And if that's their goal, how can you get them there? What do you need to build? What direction you need to go in, in order to get to whatever outcome they're looking to get to? Do you think you could have still peeled back a few layers to really figure out why this person was looking to get this built? I mean, my impression is, and what he told me is, he has this idea. He thinks it could be wildly popular. He thinks it could be, as you said, purchased by someone at some point in the future. But that's basically as specific as he seemed to get. Basically, I think you know, he has a bunch of businesses. He figures, hey, this would be fun to do and interesting. And as, as you say, I think there's some uh, ego involved in the sense of, wow, I too could be a high-tech rock star, even if I'm just the CEO or the chairman, and I'm just hiring people to do the implementation. Mm-hmm. But I do think he has a pretty clear idea in his mind of what he wants the product to look like. Yeah, I mean, if he's coming to you, if the relationship that he's looking for is strictly a vendor relationship where he's looking for somebody, he knows what he needs done, and he's looking for somebody to swing the hammer on his behalf, right? It's mm-hmm. going to be an uphill battle. I think a lot of it really just depends on the kind of client that you're working with. I mean, if you're looking, if you're like a lot of the clients we worked with, no one hired us because they were looking for a um, staff augmentation, even if their current staff is zero, right? Like right. we didn't go into the relationship of being, we're code monkeys. We're just, you know, tell us what to build and we'll build it. That wasn't the kind of client we wanted. And that wasn't the kind of work we really sought after. I think if you're going after, like we typically, we aimed for businesses that we could come in as a multiplier where they already have something going on and we can come in and using our expertise, we can come in and multiply uh, whatever key performance indicators matter to them. So that made selling on value pretty easy for us because we could say, you know, hey, this is your current revenue and profit. Uh, we think if we were to do X, Y, and Z, we could get you here and the price would be somewhere in between. And we just anchored that potential payday for the client with our cost. So can we get a little bit more concrete here? And let's say that there's a business out there, every customer that they sign up, you know, they most businesses know certain numbers about their business. So every customer they sign up is worth $50 every year. Mm -hmm. And so that key metric is how many people do we get signed up? And so you go in and you talk to them and you say, look, we can make these enhancements to the marketing side of your website. We can add these features to the application so that it'll appeal to more customers. And we really feel like we could, you know, you're adding a thousand customers every month or a hundred customers every month. And we feel like we could double that or triple that. So what you're basically saying is, is that we could get you another hundred customers every month. So a hundred customers a month times $50 a year, you know, we can make you an extra, you know, $5,000, you know, per month over the next year. 
And so that's that, a, that's actually exactly. I do have a real life story of that in action. Mm-hmm. That is very close to that. So right, but one can, of, I just yeah, want to finish ahead. this. So so the end number is somewhere around sixty thousand dollars for the mm-hmm. year, right? Right. And so that sixty thousand dollars for the year, you look at them and you say, "We can do this for twenty thousand dollars." And then they're going, "Well, this is a no brainer, you know, provided yeah. all the numbers work out." That's exactly right. Actually, a good example along those lines is one of the early students of my master class. He does a lot of like his niche, I guess, is he does marketing websites for mental health clinics, which is about as niche as you can probably get. And he was looking to get a lot of these clinics up on a retainer. And at first he was just going to approach them and say, Hey, for a thousand, two thousand a month, you know, I'll work on your site. I'll optimize it and, you know, things like that. And the problem is. If you just approach a client and say, this is my cost, there's really nothing anchoring that down. If you're saying, this is what I charge an hour and multiply some you know, estimate against that and spit out a number, what ends up happening is the client needs to think, is this worth it? Like, will I make an ROI on this expense? And what I argue you should do, and actually what, what this individual did was he called up a lot of these mental clinics and said, so what is it worth to have a patient in a bed? Like, what is the value of having one patient in one bed? And he figured, he got them to admit that it was about $30,000. That's how much they made per patient. So we worked backwards and said, okay, so how many leads does it typically take for you to get a patient? And it was something like 10 leads equals one patient. So they have about a 10% conversion rate. And that kind of allowed him to realize the lead was worth about $3,000. And his entire proposal to them was, well, if I could get you at least one new lead a month, is that worth you spending a thousand, you know, two thousand, whatever he ended up charging to make that happen? And by saying it like that, instead of, Hey, just, you know, pay me two grand each month, you know, and that being it, right? Like to work on stuff, like what does that even mean? Why should they do that? But when he could say this, when he could say, look, I know where you want to be. I know how important it is for you to get new patients because I know what that means for your business now. I will do everything in my power based on my technical expertise to get more people to fill out that lead form. And I'm going to track conversions on that form. I'm going to track the entire funnel from front page to that contact form. And I'm going to optimize that on your behalf so we get you more leads, which directly translates to more money. I mean, basically, that's what he ended up doing. And it sold like hotcakes. I mean, because he wasn't just throwing out a number. He was able to anchor his cost against an upside that he realistically thought he could deliver. Well, it's actually a lot like what I'm doing with my books right now. But I'm doing it from I would be the client. You know, Mm -hmm. like I make a certain amount of money for each book sale. And I've tracked that, you know, that means each person who just looks at the page to buy my book makes a certain amount of value for me based on my conversion rate. And it's the kind of thing if someone approached me and we'll just say it cost me a dollar to make a book sell. If someone approached me and said, hey, we can do this one thing and you'll end up getting a 100 customers, but it only cost you 20 bucks. I'll jump on that because that's way below my cost. And I'd end up be paying that freelancers rates or their fees or whatever out of the extra profit I have. But I get to keep more profit. And that's going to be something that continues each month of my business. Right. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I was actually, I fell victim to this on the client side just last week. I was given a proposal from somebody who wanted to redesign my personal site. And he just kind of tapped into my old blog post that kind of talked about where I opened up about numbers and said, well, what if we could, um, if I could get you X many new newsletter subscribers, you know, a day or a week, 
and here's how I'll do it. And here's my plan to do that. Nothing. He didn't bake anything into like page count or framework or any of that stuff. Like it, he didn't focus on that at all. It just so happens to be he, he'll be doing it in WordPress and he's doing a custom design and everything else. But the proposal to me was so focused on you pay me X and I will deliver you a multiple of X, you know, in return, which is just so much different than what typically most people do, which is, you know, I'll build you a app and this is how, what it'll have. And these are the features and, you know, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't paint a picture for tomorrow at all for me and my business. So just earlier today, I, I met with someone who's the head of this big company in Israel. And I actually thought to myself, hmm, this guy might be a good candidate for value-based pricing because he's totally not in the high-tech world. And yet he's dependent on technology. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are things that we could find in his business to improve and optimize. And then, of course, he asked me at the end of the meeting, so what do you charge? Like, what's mm-hmm. your hourly rate? Mm-hmm. So what's my answer supposed to be in such a case? I mean, the fact is, if they're asking for an hourly rate very early in the discussion, what they're looking for is you know, they want to compete on price, right? They want to say, okay, well, Ruben's saying this much an hour. Um, I'm going to go and, you know, find other people and see, you know, do a race to the bottom, basically, right? Like who's going to come up with the lowest bid? But on the flip side, what I've also found is that if somebody is about, let's say they think that you have a 50% chance that you're going to flake out and fail on a project, right? They take that into consideration whether or not they consciously recognize that in their decision. So if somebody is in their mind a low risk, you know, for failure, maybe they came through a strong referral or they've worked with you in the past or they've read about you or something like that. If you're low risk to them, if you have a very low risk of failing to deliver what you promised versus somebody who in their mind is higher risk, all things being equal, they're more likely to be willing to deepen their pockets a bit with you because the likelihood that the budget they invest being put to good use and actually, you know, netting some return for them is substantially higher than the person with the lower or the higher risk rather. Does that kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I found like one of the reasons we did so much when it came to education by teaching free seminars and everything was to really establish ourselves as experts in our field and to really prove to people that we know what we're doing, which is a great way to mitigate risk. If people are confident that we are who we say we are, because they've seen, you know, we've taught them something already, we're in their mind a lower risk proposition than if all we're doing is just putting something on paper in a PDF proposal saying, this is what we'll do, take us at our word. So all that makes a lot of sense, but I'm still curious to know, like, what's a good way to answer the question? Because it's, I mean, I'm happy to, if, if I could somehow pull a rabbit out of my hat and say, you know, when they say, what do you charge? I could say, well, it depends on the project. Let's talk about what you want to do. I mean, it's not, they're expecting a number and it's not mm-hmm. obvious to me how I answer it without giving them a number. You could pull the whole, like you said, the, <laughs> the, the slick sales guy type thing and, and kind of defer that, right? As long as you can. Um, that is one option, I guess. But the fact is, if I ever felt at all, that the client I'm working with is looking at us or looking at me as somebody who is providing a commodity service. And all they want to know is what do I, what do I price my version of the commodity at? Then that is a very strong signal to me, at least that maybe this isn't somebody I want to work with. I mean, that's the approach I took. I would have probably tried to back out of that 
Because I've been, I mean, I've been there. I've been, I've worked with prospective clients who, you know, first question they ask, what do you charge? Or how much is it going to cost me, right? Before I even know anything about their project. And uh, my go-to kind of metaphor was, well, you know, how much is a house, right? House could be a few million dollars. It could be 20,000 in a mobile, you know, mobile park or whatever. That's not really a fair question. So my goal was to capture as much about their project, what they think they need, what I think they need, and also, most importantly, what really is prompting this project. What can I learn about what brought them to the point of actually reaching out to somebody like me to get a proposal for a project? Right. It sounds to me like the client acquisition portion is fairly long then or fairly involved. How do you mean? You mean with the seminar approach that I took or just... Well, I mean, when you go talk to a client, I know even myself to a certain respect, but you know, you talk to a client once and you talk to them for half an hour and then you're like, well, here's an estimate and let's get, you know, let's get this ball rolling and get a deposit. It sounds to me like when you're going through it, you're taking a a longer time to get to that point where you're talking pricing and you have the the product uh, sussed out. So the interesting thing is I actually didn't, we had a half hour kind of introductory meeting also that was time boxed and very focused on their business. We weren't even really focused on the project on the table. We were focused. Well, we were, we didn't care about what they thought they needed built. We were focused on why are they talking to us, right? And my goal wasn't to sell a project. My goal was to sell an estimate. We charge for estimates. We call them road mapping sessions. And my goal wasn't to sell consulting. It was to sell a single day or sometimes two day estimating session. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that seems super smart, by the way. Well, and it's interesting to me because one of the things that I wind up spending time on billing hourly is, you know, they want to know how much it's going to cost, you know, start to finish or at least uh, up to a certain milestone. And so I wind up doing a lot of that anyway. And, and it's work that I'm not really getting paid for until, you know, we finalize a lot of that. And there is value in the estimate and value in, you know, documenting what they want. And so I really do like that approach. Yeah, I mean, I I look at it as distilling vague ideas, which a lot of these ideas can be pretty vague into a actionable roadmap. I mean, that could involve user stories. That could be the whole agile. These are the roles. These are the actions. These are the user stories. I mean, that's what we, we did. And the goal with doing this was we wanted to sell something that was relatively cheap compared to hiring us for six months, right? Mm-hmm. And we wanted to do something where we could get an early and immediate win. If we could deliver something to them that they got some really nice wireframes, that they really got value out of our day or two together. I mean, the obvious next step was, okay, now hire us for the full project. But outside of that, we wanted to make it so they spent a little on us and received a lot of value in exchange. And then our value prop was basically, hey, imagine spending a hundred times that on us what you'll get in, you know, what that will mean for your business. Mm-hmm. If we could make it so we had a lower risk product, and that's really what it was. It was a, a road mapping product. And we could make it so the jump wasn't pay us nothing and have no relationship with us to paying us hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, that's a pretty big jump. So we wanted to have something in between. And that was typically their road mapping session. So you kind of led up to the next part. And that is, you know, actually providing the value. Did you I guess there are two risks there, right? One is is that you wind up providing way more value than, you know, than you got paid for, which is fine because you got paid enough to, you know, cover your costs and things like that and and they're happy. So, you know, it's a positive thing, but 
you know, maybe you could have charged more. The other risk I see is what if you don't provide the value? What if they don't feel like they got the value that they paid for? In the actual engagement or in the yes. estimating session? In the actual engagement. I think the estimating <coughs> session is low enough risk to where it's, you know, unless they just don't understand what you gave them, in which case you mm-hmm. failed to communicate. I think the risk there is pretty low. But in the actual engagement where it's, you know, quite a bit of work and probably, you know, a, a reasonable amount of money. I looked at that end goal, you know, the goal that we're out to solve or achieve as a constraint on the engagement, right? So anytime the client would say, hey, I woke up with this great new idea, let's do it. We would jump on a call and I would say, well, you know, how, how does this align with, does this get us closer to that milestone or does it, you know, distract us from it? And when we had these constraints, when we had these kind of restrictions around our working engagement, and we really made sure that with each status meeting and with each, you know, we would communicate weekly with our clients um, officially, but we'd also communicate really at all times unofficially. We made sure that, you know, in each meeting, we'd say, well, is what we're doing the right thing to get us to where we need to get? Like, you know, I don't care about the form fields or the features or the design or any of that. We would discuss that, obviously. But the bigger question was always, are we getting closer to that target? And frankly, I mean, as long as there's healthy discussion at all times and, you know, I mean, if we make our best effort, if we and the client make our best effort, given everything on the table to get to that outcome. But the fact is, you know, we we failed, right? I mean, first off, that rarely happened. I mean, failure, I think, isn't exactly a binary thing for for a lot of what we're doing. I mean, you know, they might have projections that they don't meet or they don't get as close to as they would have liked to get to. But, um, you know, I mean, I've found that as long as I've seen so many projects that people build where they get so lost in the minutia and, and the details that they completely kind of lose track of why this is being commissioned in the first place. And I think with us having these constraints, with me having these constraints with my clients, it was just a lot easier for me to make sure that the work I was doing was work that would yield a return on investment in the future, right? Because that was our, it wasn't about, is this a good idea? Is this a cool feature? Is this nice? Whatever. Everything was anchored by, is this getting us closer to that goal, that problem that we need solved that we had identified early on in the engagement? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could build the best product in the world and whether it be environmental factors or industry factors or just the client just, you know, not shipping it or not, you know, putting the effort into it. I mean, we can only do our best Hmm. as long as the direction that you're aiming in is always kind of centered by by this constraint, by this outcome that needs to be accomplished. Um, You're going to be much better off than the typical person who's just kind of like, you know, building stuff. (laughs) without knowing why they're building. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you ever run into a a situation where you wished you had, instead of value-based pricing, you had gone with the commodity pricing? Kind of. There was a company in town that came to us, and at the end of the day, we realized all they really needed was Wufu. And we set it up for them, which doesn't kind of boggles the mind. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us are Rails developers or Ruby developers. I mean, how many of us have wanted to build some CMS from the ground up when all they really needed was WordPress, right? So I guess I could have, if that's what you mean, I guess I could have said, well, you know, this is our weekly rate and um, it's going to take uh, four weeks to build a blogging engine where the right proposal would have been, well, you know, this off the shelf 
piece of software will give you exactly what you need to solve that end. I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah. But it seems to me, and, and maybe this is misreading it, that it's in many ways easier to sell value-based pricing to successful non-technical businesses than to technical businesses. Is that just a misperception based on the stories you've told and written about? Or is, it, is there some like magic there that basically they say, oh, you can use technology to fix my business. That's worth a lot to me. And because I don't know how to do it, it's worth more. I mean, it depends. People like Patrick McKenzie, I mean, he worked with software companies and he was charging 30000 a week. I mean, that's definitely not market rate for the kind of Ruby code and copy he was writing. But I mean, he came in there saying, I'm a marriage counselor between your marketing department and IT. And that's literally how he proposed his projects. And that made a lot of sense to a lot of CEOs who know that IT never wants to implement the marketing stuff because it's quote unquote boring, even though a really smart lifecycle email campaign could net millions of dollars for the company. So he came in with that angle. I mean, he worked with technical companies and granted he had a name behind him, but I think if he came in there and said, I'm a Ruby developer, I want 30,000 a week. I don't think he would have gotten very far. But I mean, if by working with technical companies, if you're talking about like, hey, we've got a team of developers, we can't find more developers, will you temporarily join the team? That you're always going to be positioned against what are the salary costs of the other people on the team. Unless you come in as like some mentor or some like big hitter or something, it's going to be very hard. So for staff augmentation type things where you're joining an existing team temporarily, I think it's it's very hard to pull something like this. Yeah, it makes sense. So we kind of walked through an example of identifying value, but you said that sometimes value isn't just dollars, you know, so you look at it and it's not just, you know, so many users, so much per user, so you know, so many dollars. How do you quantify some of this other value that's uh, given back and, and how do you translate that into money? So bigger companies in particular, I think, when you're working with a division, let's say you're working with a division of a big company, they might be far removed from any revenue, right? Like they might not have much exposure to the profit and loss side of the business, you know, they work in. And to them, what they might be aiming for is maybe better. I mean, as, as dumb as it sounds, they might want better recognition internally. Like the manager or your client might want to look good for their boss. That could be what they value. That could be what your, the client values. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, um, not exactly uh, something to be, I guess, prideful of. But, you know, I think, I mean, I've worked with companies like we've worked with nonprofits who they cared about how they look when it comes to, I mean, so we worked with PETA, you know, people for the ethical treatment of animals. And they, um, most of their donors are big celebrity donors, right? Mm -hmm. So we ended up doing an iOS and Android app for them that was very, um, I mean, they weren't making any money off of it. It wasn't being sold. It wasn't, Really, I mean, I guess it was kind of indirectly affecting the donations they got, but it wasn't front and center. We got to the root of realizing that, wow, these big name celebrity donations really matter. So the elegance of the app really matters to them because they want like, you know, Christina Aguilera to take out her iPhone and have this little sexy PETA app running on it that she can show her friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of value that mattered to them. And you know, if things were all equal and we were just given a list of requirements for an a iPhone app to build, we probably wouldn't have realized how important that was to them, how important the elegance factor was to them, right? 
I mean, that's what mattered to them. But I guess, you know, at the end of the day, it still boils down to money for them. You know, they want, <laughs> they want people like Christine Aguilar to donate more money, I guess, right? I mean, we, we also worked with the Mitt Romney campaign and I mean, they were looking for people to join his newsletter, I guess, and make donations. So, I mean, ultimately that still boils down to money. But I think, I mean, the majority of clients we worked with specifically, I mean, if they're paying money to solve a problem, typically money matters to some degree to them. And that was easy for us because we would come in and really try to make ourselves an investment versus an expense. We would always push the ROI factor. And, but I mean, say you're working with a startup. I mean, you're starting with zero. They've got nothing. You are building everything. Mm -hmm. So you just need to figure out like, what is their end game? Is their end game to be acquired? If it is, then your whole proposal will be, here's how we're going to get the best app up as quickly as possible to gain you traction and gain you users so that you make a big splash, right? If they're focused on revenue, your proposal is probably much different. It just depends on really understanding, you know, what's really behind the scenes and acting on that. Yeah, that makes sense. So in the case where it's not just a clear cut, you know, they have the numbers and you can just crunch them and go, you know, we'll make you $30,000 more for 15 or 10 or whatever. Do you just ask them, would it be worth it to you to get this kind of result for this amount of money? Is it that simple or is there more to it than that? We all hate getting NDAs, right? Like when a new client says, hey, sign my non-disclosure before I talk to you about a project. We all hate that. I hate it. Uh -huh. But what I would do is I often was the one presenting the NDA. And here's what I would do. I would talk to them and get to the point in our initial meeting where I would tell them, hey, if I want to put together the best project proposal for your business, I need to know a little more than what might be publicly available. I have this non-disclosure. I want to ask you some pointed questions, but I want you to sign this first so that you know that I can't do anything legally, you know, bad with this information. So I kind of used non-disclosures to my own advantage, which worked very well by really showing the client that first off, I'm a professional. Like I get that this is sensitive data and you don't want this being publicly exposed, but I want to know this because I can't diagnose the problem if you're not willing to take off your top, right? If I, um, it's like a doctor who needs to get to a cut, but the patient refuses to disrobe. You know, it's just, it's the same sort of thing, I think. So that's kind of how I treated it, where if I want to understand the problem and I want to, you know, use my expertise to, you know, prescribe a solution, I need to know more. And almost always, I was able to get at least ballpark revenue figures or at least ballpark money or numbers or something, right? I mean, a lot of people with value-based pricing, I think, incorrectly assume that the goal is, okay, so you're going to make them 100000 you know, subtract a few dollars and price that. I don't use it. I don't think that you should be always choosing a price that's a little lower or, you know, somewhere in between what the potential payoff is for them. The way I look at it is, this is my anchor. Like, if they stand to gain 100k and it's going to take you know say my weekly rate is 10k and it's going to take me two weeks then we're looking at a twenty thousand dollar project probably i would anchor my cost or my budget proposal with that upside now i've seen projects where i didn't feel confident that we would really come out on top or i didn't feel confident that what they needed or the amount of effort they needed would make sense given the potential payoff so then the question becomes, well, can we do something different to make that payoff greater? Or how can we build something maybe or give them something that still has a ROI? And if not, then, you know, I'd rather tell the client, and I've done this before, that like, you know, 
from me as a professional who does this for a living, I don't see how this current model that you're proposing will make any sense to spend any money on. And, you know, I've done that where I've kind of been the one who, I guess you can't really say that you're firing the client since they're not really a client yet, but where you basically tell the prospective client that I just don't see how this is working, how this could work out. However, please feel free to persuade me otherwise. And then it's more equal footing. Then it's not them interviewing you, you know, to try to drive you into the, you know, the well of the race to the bottom commodity pricing to get the cheapest thing they need for the lowest price they can pay. I think so much has to do with setting yourself apart by really taking a vested interest in the direction that you'll take versus what I think, frankly, most consultants and most freelancers do, which is, okay, what colors do you want? Or how many pages do you need? Or do you want the logo here or there? Like all that stuff is typically what most clients are used to hearing. If we come in with something totally different, but that's very focused on them and very focused on the success of their business, that immediately gives us a few extra, you know, karma points when it comes to, uh, to our relationship with them. So I think you kind of answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, well, you talked about projects where, you know, it's not worth putting any money into. But what if they bring you a proposal where the value that you would provide, it's just not enough to actually pay you to do the work and make it worth it to you? Do you try and help them find another solution? Do you just tell them that there's just no way? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I, I would occasionally get the phone call to our office where they want a YouTube clone for 500 bucks. I mean, I, (laughs) not going to happen. At least 600. Truthfully, the the easiest way I've gotten around recreating Facebook for a lot of clients is by letting the client know how many developers or engineers Facebook employed and what the, or what the going rate of a developer in San Francisco is. And (laughs) that was kind of an easy way to kind of get people to realize it's not about like, you know, one click clone Facebook type stuff. But yeah, I mean, I always found it's it's valuable. I mean, if you're like us, our minimum budget was, you know, one time it was 30K, then it went up to 50K. I don't want to leave people out in the cold. So we partnered with kind of these like, you know, I don't, I don't want to say low end, but, you know, people who would take, you know, theme force templates and throw it into WordPress for you and um, do kind of these marketing brochure sites. Like we partnered with a lot of them for projects that weren't really for us, but the client came to us first and we realized they're probably like, we don't need to build the blog from scratch. Like here's a competent local designer. They can build a nice little WordPress site for you. We did that pretty often. I I would much rather do that than just say, hey, sorry, we can't help you. Mm -hmm. Did you ever uh, take or give a value-based pricing deal? to somebody and then, you know, wish that you had charged more or saw that you could have gotten maybe a little more margin? And No, I mean, we had a rate. We had a, a weekly rate. I mean, it's too hard. When we had 11 people, I mean, we would have a lot of projects going on at once. And if I had to remember the, like, the weekly rate of each project and it was different on each project, it would be, I would stumble <laughs> way too easy. And that's kind of like, I guess, ethical gray area to me, at least. So we did have a weekly rate. And the goal was just using... If we're looking at a 10-week project and our weekly rate was 10K, that meant our budget's 100000 If the potential payoff, if we don't think that they stand to make more than that, then maybe we figure out how can we do maybe less work, but still achieve that, you know, upside, or how do we make that upside bigger? You know, I mean, that was always my goal. It was simple math. We had a weekly rate. We think it'll be this much time will be required to get to this end goal. Instead of just saying, hey, we're 10,000 a week and it's going to take 10 weeks 
give us a hundred grand. We would instead anchor that by, I mean, it's the, the typical, like, you know, how do you make a, um, what is that saying? Like, you know, how do you make a $700 watch appear cheap? Put it next to a $7,000 watch, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's standard psychology, price anchoring. You say, this is what you stand to gain, put that into perspective, and now come in with a lower figure for the budget that'll be required to get you there. The positioning is basically spend 100K and get 500K back or whatever that upside could be. Right. One other question. That's, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. That's a very interesting point because I guess my impression of value-based pricing has often been uh, sort of what you described before and what you've been, I think, wrote in the last week or two in your newsletter as don't look at what they're going to make and then sort of charge them a fraction of that. So it sounds like it's almost like a two-part thing. Obviously, there are multiple parts to it, but the value-based is really for them. It's sort of to, for them to be able to justify to themselves spending this amount. But at the end of the day, you still have a weekly rate and you're going to do the estimate and you're going to estimate based on time. It's almost like a time and material sort of charge. It really but, is. Yeah. Yeah. But, but basically you're not coming to them and saying, I'm charging you this per week. You're saying, I'm going to improve your business so much. You're going to beg me to be able to pay me this much per week. Right. I want to be an investment festival for the business, which is, I know for a fact, they're not going to talk to any other vendor who's going to, or back then would have at least put it like that. And what it meant for us was we had more conversions. Right. I mean, a lot of us might spend a lot of time cultivating a lead. You might meet them at a networking event and then you get on a phone call and then you set up an appointment or a meeting and you meet with them for half an hour to an hour. I mean, this is all time. And if we can bump up our conversion rate, our closing rate, why wouldn't you do that? It's a way to kind of, like I keep saying, anchor the budget you come up with, which is the, you know, time times rate equation that most of us use and um, just anchor it with something that to them makes it so they can't just say, oh, well, you know, you're saying 10 weeks at a at 10K, let's go find somebody who will say, I can do it, you know, 10 weeks at 5K, right? Because... Right, so so that seems to be the key. Like, basically, you are still price anchoring, but you're anchoring it to their value as opposed to your competitors. Exactly. And so it's, it's looking totally different to them. That's exactly right. Yep. So one thing that I'm kind of curious about with the weekly rate is, how do I say it? So the value-based marketing is... Here's the overall increase in value that you get. And then, you know, so it's going to take 10 weeks at 10K is what we keep saying. But, uh, I mean, what do they get for that 10K in a week? Is it a developer with a general, you know, they're going to work on it at least this much or get this much done or meet these milestones or, you know, how do you quantify that for them? Or is it just you're going to have it done in 10 weeks? I think the risk is... I mean, the initial risk is, well, are they working five hours or 50 hours for that week, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I think, in general, we tend to believe, and clients do too, that hourly is better. Because if you're paying by the hour, if I'm being billed for an hour, they're probably sitting at a keyboard on my behalf for that hour. We did two things. The first, I think, is by delivering that early win through that roadmapping session, that we became a cash machine already for the client. So they realized they put cash in, they get value that to them is worth more than what they put in out of that. Mm -hmm. um, our value prop was simple. You know, this is what we charge per week. What this includes to them, we made it so they can't reverse engineer. And this, for freelancers, this isn't always doable, but for an agency it was. And what we did is we included QA and PM oversight into that figure. 
So it wasn't just, you know, they couldn't just divide some number into that to come up with an hourly rate. But on top of that, no one likes being billed for meetings or for phone calls or project management. But, you know, a savvy consultant is going to charge for them because, you know, that you're providing value in a meeting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, the benefit of weekly for us was you're basically buying commitment. And we said, if you think that, like, we're going to try to output an equivalent amount of value each week. And if you think that we're not providing more value than you're paying, then fire us. There's no long-term contracts, just fire us. And we would say that very plainly. That's the equivalent, I guess, or not the equivalent, but that's kind of tapping into that same like part of the brain that responds well to money-back guarantees. Because again, you're you're saying we're low risk. We're low risk in that you're not going to get stuck working with us long term if you think we're not worth it. So we did that, but we the goal here was really just to prove to them that we're disposable if they don't think that we deliver more value than what we cost. Their risk is always just a week. And that what they're getting in this is the ability to call us up without worrying about a meter being running in the background or without worrying that, you know, they're on the clock or whatever, that they have our attention for a week. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, some weeks, maybe I'm talking to them a little more than I was the week before. And that makes my effective rate or hourly rate, internal rate lower than it was for the week before. But, you know, I mean, all things being equal, I think my clients have responded well to it. And and if you think about it, I mean, if you're hiring a salaried employee, you're paying them a set amount each week. And for budgeting, the client doesn't need to worry that this week you're going to charge them 10 grand and the next week, 15 grand. You know, they can expect a consistent burn rate, I guess, for their project. Right. I mean, two sort of related questions. One is we know that in software, especially in say web projects, there might be weeks when you're delivering value, but it's not obvious to them. They're not going to see anything. So I'm wondering how you dealt with that. And the other thing is, what did you do, you know, in the inevitable case, or I assume inevitable case, when things took longer than you expected and originally estimated? I mean, that happens. I found that the best solution to that is just to communicate constantly. I mean, it becomes a big issue where either you or the client puts their head in the sand you get to work and then you need to come back at the 11th hour and say, oh, by the way, this is going to take a lot, lot longer than we thought. You know, I found that most problems I've ever had really had nothing to do with technology or code or writing the wrong stuff. It was usually due to miscommunication or, you know, assumptions being made that were incorrect assumptions where I'm thinking, you know, Camry and they're thinking BMW. And I've just found the communication about communication around that milestone, right? If we're always focused on that milestone and that end goal, and we're always talking about that, and we're always seeing how do we stand now this week in relation to that goal, and how does that differ from last week? That's the best remedy, I think. The worst thing you can do is just kind of build, 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 and then have this 11th hour epiphany for both you and the client where, holy crap, we are so far off base. And that's usually what makes things, you know, go down, I guess. Right. I forgot the first question you asked. I was wondering, what what happens if you've delivered value, but it's not obviously visible to them? Oh, yeah. So you're talking about like maybe the first week where you're doing mainly back-end work and there's nothing visual to display, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, communication, I think. We made a policy to have daily kind of status emails um, that go out to the client that specify what technically got done, but more importantly, what that means to them. So like if we wrote tests, we didn't say... I mean, we would say we wrote tests, but the big takeaway was we're, this will help lower the total cost of ownership of this product long term. By taking this step now, you're going to have lower maintenance costs, but more importantly, you'll have fewer production bugs. More production bugs directly affect your cost, your revenue, right? Like if users keep running into issues, they're not going to pay you. So 
we would spell it out in kind of those terms and say, like, we made sure that your billing code is airtight and has, you know, we set up a double ledger system on the back end that would uh, track any, you know, you know, a- any money being moved internally within the system and just kind of spelled out what that means for them, right? So I w- we wouldn't focus on the elegance of the code or how sophisticated things were. We would, we would, spell, we would basically translate that into, like, uh, one project in particular that I'm thinking of. We spent weeks on back-end billing code that really had no visible effect, right? But we just really communicated how they are pushing a lot of money through the system. And what we're doing now is going to make sure that it's airtight and, and most importantly that no one's going to, there's no um, you know office space issue where fractions of pennies are collecting over here and somebody is getting screwed over or whatever, right? So, um, yeah, I think, it, again, I think both of those questions re- really boil down to really good communication. Makes sense. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and do the picks. Curtis, do you want to start us off this week? Sure. I have two picks this week. Uh, the first one is a new book called The Price is Right, and it's all about pricing theory, price anchoring um, by Chris Lemma. It's actually a reasonably short read. I read 88% of the way through it, and I got it on like Friday night or something. So it is, and it's quite good. <laughs> and my second pick is a, a blog post today by a buddy of mine, Mike Schinkel, called Stop Blogging. And it says, basically, why would you blog every day? And he gets, and I also struggle with this, blogging every day and wondering if I'm providing as much quality as I could if I blogged less because I put more time into posts. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? All right, so uh, I got two today. One uh, is very good because of the new year. It's forget about setting goals. Focus on this instead. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's basically a different way of looking at goal setting instead of the idea of I'm going to go to the gym every day and lose all this weight, and then you end up stopping like January 5th or something. So it's it's pretty interesting. It's something I'm going to try this year. Uh, the second is a book I read over the holidays called Write, Publish, Repeat. Uh, it's the No Luck Required Guide to Self-Publishing Success. Uh, it's a really great book. It's mostly centered around fiction, but it's you can still use it for nonfiction. It's kind of kind of the business of writing. If you write or have books or you think about doing books, this is a nice way to look at it where it kind of elevates the writing to a business standpoint. Like, how do you do pricing? How do you get customers? All that. And that's it. All right. Reuven, what are your picks? Okay, I've got uh, three picks for today. Two of them are podcasts. Uh, there's a podcast that's been going on, I think, for a while, but I just discovered from the BBC called More or Less, which is all about statistics and numbers. So for the nerds in the audience, and there might be a few, it's a fun one. And there's another one that Slate Magazine just started. I'm not sure how much I like the name, but I really like the podcast. It's called Mom and Dad are Fighting. <laughs> and it's for parents. It's all about parenting. And um, they've only had two episodes so far, but I really like them. One of the things I really like, actually, is that each week they come on and they start the show with, what was your parenting win or fail of the week? So you get to hear, you know, one of the nice things about hearing this sort of thing is, no, no, you're not as bad a parent as you thought. And my third pick is, and I'm not just trying to suck up here, uh, I've actually joined Brennan's Freelancers Guild, and I'm super, super enjoying it. So anyway, I, I definitely recommend it. I, I think it's just been an incredible experience um, having a forum of other freelancers and being able to talk to them. And especially, I'd say, the, the biggest value has been from the mastermind that uh, were set up. So for that alone, just every Friday morning, I talk to a bunch of other people, freelancers from roughly my time zone. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, one of the high points of my week. So um, anyway, those are my picks. 
Terrific. All right, I've got some picks. So last week, I spent most of the week in Disneyland, and it was a lot of fun. Got to spend time with the kids, with my wife, uh, with my wife's family, which was less fun. And it, it was just terrific. So uh, I'm definitely going to pick Disneyland. That's the one in California. And then um, also last week, I, well, up through yesterday, so I guess it was this last weekend, um, I went to New Media Expo, which is the the conference for bloggers, podcasters, uh, web TV personalities, uh, YouTubers, people like that. And I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. I met a lot of people. I met some people that we've had on the show. Pat Flynn was there, um, Dan Miller, just a bunch of people. I met Grammar Girl. Uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. So I really enjoyed it. And uh, if you're into blogging or podcasting or anything like that, or you want to learn or start, then look into going next year. It, it's it's really a terrific conference. And those are my picks this week. Brennan, do you have some picks for us this week? I do. I have uh, two picks. Uh, the first is, so speaking of blogging, I don't like WordPress's little tiny MCE editor at all. I don't like writing in that. And I found an app called Byword, which is a Mac app. And it lets me write Markdown, and I click a button, and it publishes it to the WordPress or my WordPress blog, which is really, really convenient. So that's definitely my first pick. And my second pick is also a podcast, but it's called Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, which if you're into like five-hour episodes on, you know, why World War I happened... It's a really, really good podcast. The guy is almost, I mean, he kind of has this sound and tone of like a, a Rush Limbaugh, but without the conservativeness. So it's kind of like the, the like, imagine listening to uh, some deep dive into history for four or five hours, you know, narrated by a guy who sounds like he belongs on talk radio. So it's, it's, it's interesting and I've learned a lot. So um, I highly recommend it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Brendan. It's, it's been a... Uh, interesting discussion and definitely some things in here that I need to consider and think about. If if people want to ask you questions about this or uh, you know learn more about you or th- or anything, um, where do they go? So the best place would be brennandunn.com, B-R-E-N-N-A-N, or yeah, D-U-N-N.com, and that has a uh, link to contact, which has my email and my Twitter handle. And it also has a listing of kind of everything I do. So that's probably, or just shout out on Twitter, Brendan Dunn. That works too. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, We'll wrap this up. We'll catch you all next week.